Today, we are going to be finishing up in John 19 and sticking our necks into John 20 a little bit and uh, talking about the resurrection. We talked about the crucifixion, and now we're going to discuss the resurrection. And John has um, some stuff that is, isn't in the other Gospels, and there's stuff that's left out. And so I'm not going to try to connect all the dots, because that would be a whole sermon in and of itself. We're going to focus primarily on what John says, because I think there's some relational things happening there that would be very beneficial for us to grab onto. There's some, there's some cool exchanges happening um, between some leaders who are coming out of the darkness to be public with their leadership, and some leaders taken off, and then Jesus responding and reacting with, uh, with Mary and the disciples. It's just pretty cool. Is it cutting in and out again? Yeah. I will tighten it, twist it, give it a wiggle, and we'll see. Still cutting out? Gosh. It does it like every fourth week. Why is that? That makes no sense. Yes. Well, it's really to annoy all of you. Uh, I'll just move over. We will start John 19. I've moved my bookmarks and I'm lost. Verse 38. I'm going to read it, and then we will break it down. <clears throat> of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate... So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So he took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now he came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, 
Rabbani, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to the brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And then he had said these things to her. A lot of cool, relational, interpersonal things happening. We start first with just the the clear understanding that this is the most amazing change that we're going to see in some people's behavior, but it's also the most amazing thing to declare. Yes, we talk a lot about the cross, and we should. Theologically, the cross is what saves us. His sacrifice on the cross tells us that our sin is gone, tells us it's been paid for. We understand all those things. We don't understand them unless we have the resurrection. If Jesus just died on the cross, and we're like, hey, we're great. He died, we're good. He said he's going to die. He said he's going to pay for sin. It's all paid for. Great. But the resurrection seals the promise. It seals the deal. They have been distraught. They have been upset. They have been terrified. Since Friday night, his death, we're seeing the burial, we're seeing the tomb, and we're seeing Sunday morning after the Sabbath. This would have been Sunday morning when they show up. And in the middle of this time of weeping, this time of despair, this time of, what are we going to do? Boom. The truth hits him in the face. The truth hits him squarely between the eyes. He's alive. He's not here. He's really alive. And then you see everyone change after that. You see all of them change in their boldness. You see all of them change for 40 days experiencing Jesus. And then the final seal of the change happens when the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. So we have disciples who are denying him, terrified, unsure, what's going on. They're confused. He's back. They encounter him. They're overjoyed again. And then he leaves. This 40 days, you see a complete change in the people of God, the followers of Christ, the ones who've been redeemed by the cross, all in these moments. And we get a picture in a couple different characters and a couple different people in his life and how they change. The first is Joseph and Nicodemus. They arrive on the scene right at his death. They're there. They ask. Joseph of Arimathea, a wealthy guy, was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate he might take him away, the body of Jesus. Now, this is not customary. Yes, it was customary in Jewish culture that you would ask to take the body so it wouldn't be picked apart by the birds and by whatever else is out there, but it would happen from the family. The family would come and request the body. He is on the cross. He's dead. The family scatters. There's all this pressure. The religious leaders want him gone. And so they, Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, a secret follower of Jesus, becomes very public in his following of Jesus. And he petitions Pilate. Now, you've got to know this guy's got some power because he can go straight to Pilate. It doesn't say he talked to a random Roman soldier. Could I make an appointment to talk to Pilate? Could I? He goes straight to Pilate, and he says, I want to take care of this. I want him buried. I want him treated properly. I want this dealt with. And then we see he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, we know, went to him at night, 
a mem- member of the Sanhedrin, goes to him at night, comes bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about 75 pounds in weight, a mat- 75 pounds of spice to then bury Jesus. We know from some of the other Gospels, from Matthew 27, Joseph was a disciple. Mark calls him a prominent member of the council in 1543. He adds that Joseph would not... I'm sorry, I flipped it. Nicodemus was a different person. Joseph was the Sanhedrin. Apologies. From uh, Matthew 23. We know that this guy was against what was happening, so he felt a responsibility to take care of Jesus in a proper way. That he was a disciple. He was a, a follower. And so they, these two men, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they come together to take care of Jesus and properly bury him. 75 pounds of aloe, 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh. Now, this should make all of your ears perk up. I thought the women with Mary, and they all went to the tomb, and they were going to prepare on Sunday. What's going on here? Well, it would appear that the women who were going to come on Sunday morning didn't know that all this was happening. They knew that he was going to be put in a tomb. They knew that he had been taken care of, but they didn't, but they didn't know 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Or if they did know, they didn't care. They themselves wanted to personally prepare and take care of his body. 75 pounds of aloe and myrrh, and he's already wrapped up. He's already, that's already happened. He's already been buried with all the ritual things that are supposed to happen, but the women wanted to come and take care of him, take care of him even more so, pour some more of themselves onto this. They loved Jesus. They loved him, and so did these men. They were followers and wanted him treated with dignity and respect. They didn't agree with how he had been killed. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had been laid yet. So because of the Jewish day of reparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. There is some uh, discussion over the linen cloths, that these are strips, or, this, or is this like the Shroud of Turin that you've seen the, the kind of tradition about? Um, they all can go together. The tradition was to wrap them in cloths. So when you hear linen cloths, and some people would say strips of cloth, and they would say, well, that's mummification. That's not what's happening. Just let all that kind of flow out of your brain. He's wrapped in cloth, and in each layer of the cloth, you would put in the aloe and the spices to help fight back the stench of decomposition. And so that's, you would have wrappings of cloth, and then there would be perhaps a shroud over the top. And we see here in a minute, there was clearly a, a shroud over his face. So they didn't mummify him if there was a, a linen cloth on top of his face. So sometimes, especially around Easter time, people start trying to, History Channel loves to try to connect Christianity with the pharaohs, and they do a bad job, but they still mislead people. So don't, don't go down that road. They bury him. What I find quite significant, and I, I don't know if this is just me trying to read into it and finding this in alliteration, but I, I feel like John, um, the God through John, is always giving us these hints and always giving us these little pieces that if we dig a little deeper and think a little harder, we might make some connections. So why, why give us that there's a garden, and in the garden a new tomb where no one else has been laid, like this fresh, pristine garden. Is this helping us to see that Adam was in a pristine garden and he messed it up, and now Jesus, our Savior, is laid in a pristine garden because he's the better Adam, we're told over and over again? Like, is there something going on there? Is that just me wanting to read into something really cool? I don't know. 
Because then after this, we see that Mary sees him as the gardener. She sees him as a gardener. So there's something, I feel, going on in this picture we're getting from John of the garden. That this is a future hope kind of thing. This is a restoration of creation that's going to come to pass over time. But I could also just really like that idea, and I'm reading into it myself. I don't know. So he's in the garden. And then we have Saturday, Sabbath. Friday night to Saturday, Sabbath is broken, we're Sunday morning. John doesn't give us a lot of detail, he gives us none. It's just from, he's buried, he's in the tomb, oh, Sunday. That's what we get from John. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, to whom Jesus loved, which is John writing about himself. He does, just wait, okay. So she tells out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She's not thinking resurrection. She's not thinking he's alive. She's thinking that her, the person who loved her, the person who forgave her, the person that showed her compassion in the midst of all the stuff, and everybody else wanting to destroy her, and wanting her to be broken in sin, is gone. And she is devastated. So she runs back to the disciples. Was she not in on the conversations? Did the disciples not let this conversation spread? Because here in a minute, they immediately, when, the, when John and Peter encounter the empty tomb, they go home because, like, well, he said he was going to be resurrected. So I it happened here, but Mary very clearly is not ready for a resurrection. She is not ready for that. She believes they've taken the body. She feels that they've probably, maybe they've, desecrated the body, they've scattered him. That in, in the Middle Eastern culture, any time that there was a, a god or there was a, a rival tribe, you would smash, especially in the Romans. The Romans did this all over Israel. Any time you had a god or someone, someone worshipped, you destroyed all likeness of it and you built on top of the tombs or the top of the idols or the, or the, the altars of, of different gods you'd build yours on top of. And so there's a cultural custom in the Middle East of destroying all remnants of someone that was seen to be a god to try to just wipe the memory out. So that's what's going on in her head. Where's Jesus? His body's gone. The tomb's been rolled. That takes people. That takes the government. That takes their trying. What are they doing with him? So she runs to Simon. So Peter goes out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I don't... Like, is that John poking at Peter? Old man couldn't keep up. I, I don't know. I just find it funny that you would... That, why, why would you put that as a detail in there? Like, those little details consistently prove to me the Bible is not just made up by a bunch of people sitting in a room trying to have a conspiracy. Why would you do that? Why would you write in there... Uh, I, slow. You wouldn't do that. You would, that's, not some, that's not a detail you would embellish. There's no reason to put that in there if you're sitting down crafting something that's made up. He's recording what happened. And maybe a little bit of a poke at Peter. I don't know. I think it's a funny thing. They get there. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen claws lying there, but he did not go in. So John arrives first, stoops down and looks, sees the tomb, the tomb is empty, sees the linen claws, but then he does not go in. Even in our, in our 
new hearts were given at our day of salvation. A lot of the characteristics about who we are don't change. If you're prone to, like Peter, he was the part of the sons of thunder, brash, outspoken. So John is the one that sits and looks, and Peter just busts in. Like there's still, like you, I think it's too often in the Christian life, we think that once we become a Christian, we're just completely a, nothing about our person. We just have to change everything about us. There are things we definitely need to change, but if we're prone, our personalities and things that we are, those things are going to be tempered, but you don't change a lot in those regards, unless it's sinful, and then the Spirit will help you change those. But you see Peter and John, their interaction. John runs fast and first. He's young. He's ambitious. He's, he gets there, but he's timid. Peter gets there slower, huffing and puffing, and just blows right past John to get into the tomb and see it for himself. And if you read through the Gospel of Mark, which is Peter's telling of these accounts, and you read John, John's telling of these accounts, you see their personalities coming out in the Gospels that they are part of. Mark is short, sweet, to the point, brash. John is not relational, more detail. That's John. And we're seeing that flesh out here in this account. Peter comes, follow him, goes in the tomb. He sees a linen cloth lying there in the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. There's order to this scene. There was order in the resurrection. Jesus, I, I don't, I, it's all conjecture. Did he phase through the cloths like we see in sci-fi movies? Did they just move around him? Did they disintegrate? Did they? I don't know. But we do see is a folding of the headpiece. And we've all probably heard sermons before at the folding of the napkin, the folding of that piece is a, sometimes a symbol of a return. I'm coming back. I'm going to be back to this table. It was a custom in Jewish culture that the way you folded your napkin and you put it on the table, then you would say, say I'm coming back. I enjoyed the meal. I'll, be, I'll see you soon. I, sounds great. Sounds like a great sermon illustration. But all we see here is that there's order. There's order to this. This isn't a busting out because I'm alive and they thought I was dead and I'm going to bust out of my clothes. I'm going to. This is an orderly moment. And Peter walks in and sees this. And he immediately remembers all the promises that Jesus has made. John stoops in. He saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So in this moment of the resurrection, they, it clicks. Oh, he said that. Oh, three days. Oh. So for Saturday, the Sabbath day, they've been wrecks. They've been unable to really function. They're in hiding. Mary comes in and tells them his body's gone. They run to check it out, and it clicks. This is it. This is it. In the other accounts, we have angels saying, well, he told you where to go. John doesn't give us that detail. So they're already in preparation in their minds saying, okay, this is it. He's alive. We're going to see him again. They just go back home. 
Now, we see Jesus shows up. We'll get there. Shows up. He's there. They're, they're slowly at peace. They witness him. They see the scars. They see these things. Thomas is still a bit distraught. He's out in hiding and he comes back. You put all those accounts together. But Simon and John in this moment, Peter and John in this moment, starting to make sense. The dots are starting to line up. But they leave Mary hanging. I, f- I find this a bit disturbing. I love where it goes because it's beautiful. But there's also a part that says, what a bunch of jerks. Here's Mary Magdalene, who is completely distraught. She's losing it. John and Peter run, and so Mary's going to catch up. And they would have had to have passed. And Mary shows back up. She's, still, she's there. John and Peter go back home. Hang out with the disciples. They're going to share the story. And that's when Jesus appears in that room. But Mary's there left. I'm like, what? I'm a little irritated by that, if I'm honest. Where's the compassion in this moment? But I think I know why. The disciples are starting to see that everything that Jesus promised is going to come to pass. So we don't have to stand around and weep. We don't, we don't have time for this. They're moving towards the next part of this mission Jesus has put them on. But Mary hasn't caught up to all of this. But Mary stood weeping. Um, this term for weeping, when you look at it in Greek, it's, it's a, it's a lack. She's losing it. She's completely broken in this moment. She told the disciples what was happening. They go check it out. Then they leave her there. And she's just left in this whirlwind of grief. And so she's standing there in deep sorrow, crying her eyes out, maybe even wailing a bit. She saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Has anybody ever done that to you? This big moment's happening. You're in the middle of your despair, and someone walks in and goes, Why are you crying? That's a terrible thing to do, isn't it? That's, that's not very compassionate. But I think the angels are in, on, they're in on this, obviously. They know what's happening. So they have a confidence, like, why are you so upset? Did you not pay attention? I don't know if the angels knew that she wasn't in on it. I, I don't, we don't know those details. They respond to her and say, why are you weeping? Now, she doesn't fall on her face, because she, most people react by falling on their faces when they see angels. She didn't. Is it because she didn't really see that they were angels? Didn't realize they were angels? Wasn't sure? She couldn't see through her tears? She's, she's a, emotionally breaking down. They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have him, where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. This is one of those things Jesus likes to do. We see this on the, the walk to Emmaus. We see these things where he doesn't fully reveal himself until either you're ready or he's ready for you to be ready. Like he can just put it on you and make you ready real fast, or he lets you have some peace and he lets you get there. It's the same way when he captures our hearts in that moment of salvation. Some people, it's an instantaneous. You hear the truth. And it rocks you, and you're like, yes, 
yes and amen. And others will hear it for years and years and years and years. And then something happens and he finally reveals the whole truth to you. And then you're in. I can't tell you why it's one way or the other. I can't tell you. I just know I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen people walk into a building. They hear the gospel for the first time. And they're like, yes, that's the truth. And others, it's a decade. And I'm sure you all have people in your life that are the same way. You don't change anything about your approach. You don't change anything about how you talk about Jesus. They all know how you feel. They all know your affection for Christ. They all know those things, and you share your love of God, and then all of a sudden you get a phone call one day. You're like, I get it. What? Well, yeah, you said this. I said that 50,000 times to you over 10 years. Well, it clicked yesterday. Mary's here, distraught. Having said this, she turned around, saw Jesus standing, but didn't know it was him. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. I know it's just me. There's something going on with this garden thing, I believe. Why would she assume he's the gardener? She sees two angels. I don't know if she really understands their angels. She sees two people in the tomb sitting where the body is. Wouldn't that be kind of like a, Hey guys, uh, what are you doing in there? This is a tomb. The body's gone. That's kind of morbid. What are you doing? Oh, it must be the gardener. Not a soldier, not a... I think John's giving us a window into the Garden of Eden and this garden and coming together and the fulfillment of God's plan, the restoration of us to the garden. It's going to take a lot longer, but we're getting some hints. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. What boldness. What boldness. Like, the disciples ran back to the house. She's still investigating. The the guy where the disciples of Christ did nothing. I'll take care of this. Where is he? I'll get him. I'll carry him back. Doesn't care about cultural norms. Doesn't care about uncleanliness. Doesn't care about just... I'm. So in love with Jesus was she. And then Jesus says her name. And that's all it took. Just says her name. Reveals himself to her. And she cries out, teacher. And grabs a hold of him for dear life. How many times have have you felt, maybe not audibly, probably not, but probably maybe some, when Jesus, in an intimate way, speaks your name? In that moment of salvation, in a moment of despair, in a moment of, and that all comforting, I see you, I know you, I love you. And she immediately grabs him. Holds on tight. All that despair, all that loneliness, all that frustration and terrified anger, all of the emotion rolled into this moment and just the name. Mary reveals himself to her and she grabs him. All this pent up comes unleashed. 
So when you see Jesus, tell her, um, let go of me. John Calvin describes it this way when it comes to Mary. In Mary, we have an image of our calling. True knowledge of Jesus is when he intimately invites us to himself. Not with a voice that falls indiscriminately on the ears of everyone, but with the voice with which he calls the sheep the Father has given to him. We know that the, the net is cast wide for fish to come to Christ. But in that moment of intimacy, he's not saying, I love all of you, please come to me. He's saying to you, I love you. You're mine. I will never let go of you. We're seeing that picture. We're seeing that a story unfold with Mary. Jesus said, do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father, but go to my... Now, this, this sounds a little harsh. And so if you look at a couple other translations, and you dig into it, and I won't give you into... There, there's some Greek stuff with... It doesn't matter. This is like him saying, you're squeezing me a little too tight. Don't hold on so much. This isn't Jesus saying, don't cling to me for I've not yet ascended. <clears throat> I've heard this, I heard this preached once that was saying, don't cling too tight to Jesus in that moment. Um, there's still a mission, there's still a plan. Mary, it's not about you. You need to go get the disciples. I've, kinda, I've heard that before and it was wrong. We need the NS... NASB says, Stop. the NIV translates it, do not hold, hold on to me. This is Jesus as she has lost it emotionally. She continues that losing it of hugging him in great affection. You're really alive. It all becomes clear to her. It all becomes, she is just so overjoyed. She's been a wreck, and now she's even more a wreck because her fears now been turned to joy, and she's confused, and she's just holding tight. Like her arms can hold him tighter than the death cloths that are now laying there with no one in them. But she's holding him tight. Now, we don't know how long this moment they have together is. I can't imagine that she just wraps and gives him this bear hug, and he's like, hey, 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 now. It's a little touchy-feely right now. I don't know how long this moment is, but I would venture to say it's not just a few seconds. And then he tells, to her, he tells her, hey, don't, don't hold so tight. We do still have some things to do. I'm here. I'm really here. I've not yet ascended. There's, we, ha we don't have forever to be together. There's a mission. We have to fulfill this. We've got to get moving. <clears throat> Go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the first time that Jesus has called God father of the disciples. We see this nowhere else in the Gospel of John. This is Jesus declaring that because of what has happened on the cross, the veil is torn, the intermediary is no longer necessary, God is your Father. That you have an intimate relationship with God the Father, not a terrified, I can't be near the Father because He's God and I am not. He's, he's Abba. He's Daddy. He's right there, right there with you. Go tell the disciples. 
I'm ascending to my father and your father. You're not just my disciple, you're my brother and my sister. This is Jesus extending the family of God into the disciples. But the cross had to happen first. You could be a follower of Christ, a follower of his teaching, and a believer that he is the Messiah, but you're not his brother until death and resurrection happen. He's declaring to them all. We're in this together. We're a family now. Where you thought you needed the distance, you needed the sacrifice, you needed the the priest, you needed all of those things, you now have a, a personal relationship with God the Father because of God the Son. Changes everything. The yes, we should have a holy awe of God the Father, of Jesus, of the Spirit, because they are eternal, co-equals in heaven. They created everything. We should have an awe, but we should not have a fear. Jesus is my brother. God the Son is my brother. God the Father is closer than my own father. He's my real father. Jesus entering into this moment saying, it's been fulfilled. It's been complete. All thousands of years of the brokenness from the fall in the garden is now being made complete. You have nothing to worry about. You have no fear to hold on to. You're part of the family. So the question to kind of leave us with, Jesus is alive. Are you? This isn't just theological from Romans in chapter 10. If you confess believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So without a belief in the resurrection, you have no good news of the gospel. If you do not believe in the resurrection of Christ, you are not a Christian. If you do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not saved. Your eternity will be one of torment, not of joy. Are we that bold with the people around us in our lives? Now, you can't just throw that at everybody the first time you meet them. Sometimes you got to, but most of the time it takes some relationship building, some time to grow into this. Uh, Colton Powell, who has led worship with us uh, here in the first service multiple times, he's the director for the Navigators on campus. We had lunch last week, and uh, there's a young man who's coming. He's, um, he's an international student, and he's been coming through the NAVS organization and he's been playing frisbee with them, and he's been hanging out with them, and he professes that he's a spiritual guy. But he's not made a profession of faith in Christ. But he's very curious. He's very, he wants to know more, and he's hanging out with these, this crew of people. And so Colton's meeting with him and hanging out with him, and they're, they're, they're just, he's waiting for the opportunity to be able to share the gospel. Now, if in the first meeting he said, well, you know, you believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection? No. Well, you think this last week was a little warm. It's going to get a lot warmer for you if you don't 
You don't do that to people. That's not what we do. But he's building a relationship, and it will get to that conversation. Do you, sitting here, I pray most of you do, believe in the resurrection. You believe in the resurrection of Christ. You believe he died on the cross for your sin, and he's alive. That he bodily will get there eventually, ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. If you don't believe that, then you don't have salvation. The resurrection puts feet to all of the promises that God made. Now, for those of us in the room who do believe that, do you live a life that makes bold statements that Jesus is alive? What I mean by that is, do you live in a a state of fear? Do you live in a state of, oh my? Do you live in a state of, I'm terrified? Do you live in a state of, because we see that change with the disciples. After his resurrection, and after the day of Pentecost, all of these disciples that were a bit scared, and a bit unknown, and a bit, like, I'm not sure, and hiding in the upper room, their boldness explodes, and all of them but John get martyred for their faith. They're unwilling to back down from anything. What about us? What about us? Do you live with a boldness that this is a temporary spot that is not your eternity? Or do you live in a, with a spirit of timidity because you're so anxious about everything that's going on around in the world? And, or do you live with a boldness that says, yes, this virus is running crazy. Yes, there's stuff happening in the Middle East. Yes, there's things happening in our community. Yes, I'm not sure what's going on, and I think everything's going to hell in a handbasket. I don't know what that means, because who has a handbasket anymore? Like I, I, or do you look at the world and say, it's still broken? It's been broken since Adam and Eve. It's not going to be unbroken until Jesus returns. And until that comes... I'm going to take life day by day by day, professing faith, professing hope, and helping others see that there's something bigger and better than even what we have accomplished here on earth. And if you have that kind of a boldness and that kind of a confidence, you can wade through anything. And too often people are crippled by this fear. They're crippled by the what-ifs and the unknowns and the I'm-not-sures. and None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us. So how do you live your life day by day in the shadow of the resurrection, in the knowledge that Jesus is alive and He chose you and He loves you and He wants you to be filled with that kind of boldness that there are people all around that might be in despair, might be filled with anxiety. And you have a bold confidence, no matter what happens on this earth, I get Jesus forever. No matter what happens, plane crashes, car wrecks, infections, diseases, cancer, addictions, broken relationships, all of it, all that life entails in this broken world, 
But I have Jesus. I got Jesus. I might be filled with sadness some days. I might be filled with great joy some days. I might have things that come my way that take my knees out from under me. And I might need a couple days to gather myself before you come talking Jesus to me. But I'm, I'm going to come to the place of confidence because of the resurrection. If he's alive, then I'm alive. If eternity is real and I'm going to be there someday, I'm going to live that way. Do you believe that? I'm seeing over and over again the impact of a worldview without Jesus in this community, in the world, in this nation. That there's a, with, When you have a worldview that doesn't have the hope of the resurrection, people put their hope in a million things. Medical procedures, financial markets, vaccines, leaders. You put all of your hope in all of these things. And I'm not saying don't put a little hope in some of it, but ultimately it will always let you down. Your hope is in Christ. The church has historically always stepped into the darkest moments in a fearless way, professing a faith in Christ. Though whatever comes our way, this is just the mission. Our victory, our prize, is heaven. How many funerals have we done since I've been here in nine years where someone has been a believer in Christ and we have said over and over and over again they've received the prize, the victory is theirs, they now have heaven. We don't say, the prize is my 401k, the victory is my house being paid off. My prize is my truck. Like, we don't say that stuff. What we say is Jesus is the prize. Heaven is the victory. Living like that shows a lot of confidence and builds a lot of hope in people. So my challenge is to think about this week. Are you living like that? And if not, what's in the way? We need to get it out of the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for some time in this amazing Gospel of John, helping us to see the um, devoted themselves to you and how you revealed, revealed yourself to them in their darkest moments. Help us to cling to that truth of the resurrection. Help us to have a confidence in this life because we have confidence in our eternal life. There are more and more people around who are filled with fear and anxiety and some unknowns about their futures. And we have those answers, Lord. They're right here in your word. Help us to share them. We love you. Amen.